Welcome to episode 5 of Coffee and Circuses. This week I'm talking to Andy Gardner, who's a senior lecturer in Roman archaeology at the Institute of Archaeology at University College London. Those of you that are familiar with Andy's work will be unsurprised to hear that we talk a fair bit about archaeological theory in this episode. Andy, I guess, is kind of Mr. Theory, given his long connection with a theoretical Roman archaeology conference and much of his research output is in relation to theoretical frameworks and the Roman world, particularly looking at more recently border studies and frontier societies and how they come together in the Roman world. But we're going to be talking a bit about how Andy got to the point where he decided that theory was his thing. You might be surprised to hear that in his undergraduate days, he wasn't particularly fussed about it. And I do wonder if a lot of people, particularly as undergraduates, aren't overly engaged in the theoretical side. I myself was kind of of a similar mould. And much like Andy, it wasn't until I did my master's that I really had my moment where the light bulb went on. And I was like, this is, this is some interesting stuff. But we'll be talking also more widely about how Andy got into the field of Roman archaeology also as well, for those of you that know Andy, you know that he's quite engaged in politics, so we'll be talking about that, and you might say in some respects the politicalization of Roman archaeology, uh, and also alongside that you can't really escape it nowadays, what that means in regards to social media, but also more lightheartedly we'll be talking about gaming and archaeology, and perhaps the most important aspect of this episode, the quite impressive collection of lego star wars including a millennium falcon that he has in his office and i think you can genuinely hear my excitement when we get onto that point but no it's a really fascinating fascinating episode i'm really happy with it and i hope you are too um those of you that listened to last week to the previous episode might have noticed that i am sans jay ingate for this introduction at the moment but much like the credit roll of a marvel movie uh, where it says at the end, such and such will return. Jay Ingate will return. You'll love that analogy if he listens to this. But yes, it's just me this week wishing you, uh, I guess, season's greetings, because when this goes out, it will be the 3rd of December. So thank you for joining me, and uh, hope you enjoy the episode. Because um, it's the one I encounter least often. Okay. Guinness, you know, you know, it's good, but you can get it everywhere. Um, Murphy's is a little bit easier to get than Beamish, I'd say. So I would go with the one that I find uh, most difficult to drink okay. in terms of availability. <clears throat> case of absence makes the heart grow fonder. Always. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it used to be around more, like twenty years ago. Um, but these days it's pretty hard to find anything in England anyway, apart from Guinness. Because mm. when I was in Ireland about a month or so ago, I don't think mm. I've ever had Beamish before. Mm. Um, Beamish Black and Beamish Red. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, uh, that would be my choice. Okay. Do you think Guinness tastes better in Ireland? Um, yeah, yeah, I guess it does, but that could be just, you know contextual sensory experience or something oh true actually true <laughs> if you're told it tastes better then maybe you just believe it tastes better yeah. I don't know I think I think maybe it does but then that's I got taken to a pub when I was in Cork by somebody who said this will be the best pint of Guinness you'll have in the whole of Ireland mm-hmm. um, so we went and we were all like this Guinness tastes amazing but now when I look back on it I do wonder a little bit like was were we just kind of playing up to that yeah, that yeah, idea yeah. That, yeah. well um, it's, uh, it's a good case study in how your senses are affected by what you're told and what you're Expecting maybe. Yeah. Do you got Irish relatives? So you no, oh, okay. No. You just went because I saw you did go to Ireland. Really. Um, I did. Yeah, uh, I was examining a PhD. Oh, think, okay. um, Alex on me actually. Oh, yeah. Uh, he's a regular at track. Um, yeah, no, it's fantastic. But yeah, um, Dublin is a place I've been to a few times, and yeah, I really like it there. Okay, and sample the local delights in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, <clears throat> I'm getting closer and closer to getting my Irish passport now. I've got the hardest part of the jigsaw puzzle sorted. My dad's parents are Irish, although unfortunately my my aunt was born in Ireland, but my dad wasn't. He was mm-hmm. born here, so I have to go back to one of my grandparents. But um, I've decided to go with the route of my grandmother. Um, 
but that was quite interesting because I had to, she passed away before I was born, but I had to track down her birth certificate um, so you can access the, the, registry, the registry online. Um, and because she was born in, well, she was born in 1916, but my dad didn't realise that. My dad had oh. a completely different date and year and everything for it. Um, wow. And as was suggested to me afterwards, because she was essentially born in rural Tipperary, yeah, yeah. they just registered the birth whenever they felt like it. Yeah, so yeah. N- the yeah, my dad, for her entire life, or the entire time, <clears> my, my yeah, throughout my grandmother's life, she seems to have celebrated her birthday on the wrong day, which is quite interesting. Or maybe the right day, and the, the, the date that's recorded is, is incorrect. Although yeah. I'm slightly apprehensive, because I need to get her marriage certificate and death certificate and I don't know if the dates are going to then therefore mm, add up on them, which might yeah. cause me issues because I could go down my grandfather's, <clears throat> the route of my grandfather, but his name being Walsh is pretty common. Yeah. Uh, John Walsh is, is going to take a while to sift through all those records yeah, in Ireland. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. my grandmother's name is Furlong, which is quite <coughs> uncommon. So it was yeah, much easier to find. Yeah. Um, yeah. Worth doing, though. Yep. <laughs> that freedom of movement. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, so to, to well going going back in time, how did you how did you first get started in archaeology? Um, well, so uh, in my mid-teens, um, I mean I've been doing you know history uh, as usual, I guess, um, and uh, did a couple of things that just made me decide to definitively plump for archaeology. One was working in the museum in the town where I was growing up at that time, which was uh, Horsham, <clears throat> Horsham Museum, um, as you know, just a volunteer, and then also going on my first dig when I was 16, which happened to be uh, the Boxgrove excavation run by Mark Roberts, who um, still you know, now is a colleague, but uh, who worked there for many years, and... Um, yeah, I mean, that was a Paleolithic site, so, you know, quite different to where I ended up. Um, quite a eye-opening experience for a 16-year-old, but um, really amazing, actually. And after that, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it was pretty straightforward. Applied to all archaeology degrees, came here to the Institute, never looked back. Um, it always seemed to me that archaeology had a massive edge over history in terms of uh, not just the scope of the subject, but also the, you know, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but the tangibility of the past that we're encountering rather than the mediated version. Obviously, archaeology is mediated in other ways, but still, the um, the uh, encounter that you have is a different one. So that was appealing <clears throat> at first, and then over time, I guess, my perspective on what the past means and all that sort of thing has changed quite a bit, but still, you know, that's where it started. How come you ended up in Roman archaeology particularly? Because if you just applied generally for archaeology, how come you didn't yeah. end up down a different route or stay well, with prehistory? Or... I mean, I was a pretty eclectic undergraduate, I think. I did courses in different things. A bit of Mesopotamia, a bit of uh, Central and South America. Um, but I I had a kind of classical um, leaning in terms of having done classical serve as an A-level, <clears throat> and I think I was pretty taken with kind of Greek and Hellenistic stuff to begin with, but just the nature of the courses that were available here, the fact that um, in the 90s, which is when this was, uh, the Institute had quite a strong Roman provincial uh, archaeology offering through Richard Reese, Mark Hassel and John Wilkes. Um, there were just more Roman courses and I did uh, some of those, particularly Mark's kind of Roman military stuff and... Um, I'm currently reviewing the collection of papers that have oh, come out yeah, yeah, yeah. which I always find a bit strange because I'm like, how do I criticise any of this? <laughs> like, I'm just like, yeah. this is great and important, yeah, done. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so that sort of pulled me in that direction. And I guess then what kept me there was the sort of theoretical epiphany that I had when I did my master's degree, and then that set the template for the rest of my career, kind mm-hmm. of. So it was a kind of gradual process. It wasn't a 
you know, from day one that I knew that I was going to be a Romanist and that was that. Um, it was a gradual thing, but I think <clears throat> having those wider interests has been helpful to me in terms of the sort of literature I've become familiar with, had to become familiar with in terms of teaching theory and, and that sort of stuff. It's quite interesting because um, at the time of recording now it's not actually out, but when I was talking to Greg Wolf the mm. other week um, for the podcast, Greg was saying how important he thinks it is to get outside of the box of ancient history, the mm. Romans, etc., yeah. and talk to prehistorians, talk to people in other other fields, because yeah, that's yeah. the way you broaden your horizons, particularly when it comes to research. You get in, interested in new ideas, you engage with different ideas, which, you know, it's great and all to keep going to the same <clears throat> conferences or reading the same literature, but there comes a point where you're not going to start pushing the boundaries enough if you just keep doing that. If you keep, if you, if you go out and you do or you stay up to date with what's going on over fields like prehistory in particular, it can really inform the way you approach Roman archaeology or whatever field mm. you happen to be in. Absolutely, I entirely agree with that. I mean, of course, it's not always been the case that people have felt like that, and uh, what we've seen since the time the track started and, you know, significantly enhanced by the existence of track is the fact that scholars in our field of minor British archaeology particularly are really um, happier to do that, whereas in the generation before it was completely the opposite and, and prehistory was dismissed as sort of irrelevant to classical culture uh, as Britain was assumed to have had at that time. So yeah, I mean, but I think it does sort of go both ways and I think the world would obviously be a better place if more people just talked to each other and <clears throat> shared ideas and, and I think Romanists have a lot to contribute as well as to learn and um, being part of that sort of multidisciplinary multi-subdisciplinary community of archaeology is really beneficial for all of us mm. Do you think, because you <clears throat> talked before I know at conferences about anthropology and the growth of anthropology do you think there needs to be more of a, a, a dialogue? Because in this country, anthropology and archaeology are quite separate, which is not the case in, say, somewhere like America. Mm. Um, do you think there needs to be a strengthening of dialogue? It's quite interesting uh, at Kent, actually, because we have an anthropology department and then we have classics and archaeology, which are in two separate schools. Yeah. Um, and I would suggest <clears throat> that perhaps we don't interact as much as we probably should do. I think that's changing. We we did a dig before the start of term, just a two week dig with our archaeology students. But the anthropology guys came out for a few days as well, which is quite Excellent. nice. Yeah. They were very enthusiastic mm -hmm. about the whole thing. But do you think there needs to be more of a dialogue? Or uh, yeah, I mean, I guess where you did also once say we should destroy them. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I meant that in the kindest possible way. <laughs> what I meant there was to do with a slightly different issue, which is the. Uh, relating to the difficulties that archaeology is having recruiting students. Mm. And at least until recently, and it may actually be changing, but at least until recently, anthropology, it seemed to me, was doing a rather better job of recruiting uh, undergraduate students, but also kind of pushing itself in a wider world as a sort of intellectually rigorous, but also sort of useful and interesting discipline. There was a really interesting... Uh, I forget the name of it now, but a couple of years ago on the radio, on Radio 4, there was a, uh, a series of um, programmes about anthropological theory. It's pretty hard to imagine a series, kind of peak time, Radio 4, about archaeological theory. But it shouldn't be. And, it, you know, one of the kind of perennial issues, I guess, and it's again, it's improved, but I've taught theory for a long time. Um, a lot of, traditionally at least, a lot of people come into archaeology without a full awareness of its theoretical complexity and I'd say that's probably true of the wider kind of public image of archaeology as well it's not seen as a really intellectually demanding uh, subject but it is massively more so than almost anything else you can name I think so that's what I meant about at least pulling ourselves up to be on a par with anthropology in terms of recognition of what the discipline entails but in terms of interaction or engagement between disciplines, yeah, absolutely. I mean, here, <clears throat> where we have a, an archaeology and anthropology degree, but that's not that common in the UK. 
Um, of course, in the UK, archaeology, for historical reasons, is generally aligned with history. But I think a little bit like we've got a... I mean, in principle, that's definitely something we should be doing more. From my experience, though, we are increasingly having to kind of push against the volume of stuff that we have, almost just as humans, to deal with, and that there's always a limiting factor somehow to <clears throat> overcome, just to do with how busy people are. And it's 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 absolutely fine to say, yeah, we need to do more things with, you know, here sitting in my office, anthropology is just over the the back of the building behind us uh, history's over the road you know you could walk to any of those departments in about a minute and we can say yeah let's do joint seminar series or whatever but just the schedule's already packed all academics that I know are overworked they have too many things to do already so we need to somehow have a little bit of a revolution in how we organise our work I guess to make these things more possible I don't know how we do that. But it's sort of, it's comparable to something we were talking about earlier in terms of, you know, what TV shows you keep up with. There's just so many, you can't do it all. There's too much TV. There's too much TV. There's too many movies, there's too much music. (laughs) There's just absolutely loads of everything. And if you're interested in, you know, a a bunch of things, then it's great. There's loads of stuff to choose from, but you become overwhelmed quite quickly. So I don't know, I guess it's about being strategic, in choosing what things you commit to about picking your battles so picking your battles yeah I guess so yeah yeah and being content for other people to pick other battles and and develop you, can, you know you can't do everything yourself basically but um, yeah so to answer your question definitely we should do more <clears throat> I mean it's good working here because it's interesting that the UCL anthropology department, uh, you know, has quite a strong material culture section. People in that, at least the sort of older generation, people like Chris Tilley, Danny Miller, you know, they used to be archaeologists, uh, and they have contributed a lot to archaeological theory, and so there's more of a um, connection uh, already, but still probably one that we don't exploit as much as should be uh, the case. So, yeah, but uh, you know. Again, it's difficult to not only develop those interdepartmental links within your own institution, and also there's a you know a scene in London of Romanists that I'd like to contribute more to, and then there's lots of people in other universities around the country that I'd like to speak more to and talk to. So, yeah, it's just uh, tough to keep up with all of that really and also mark the pile of essays I've got to mark and mm. <clears throat> review the papers I've got to review and all that other work that's all equally important in its in its ways. You're saying that you <clears throat> when you did your masters you had your kind of moment where you were like theory is yeah the thing I'm going towards. What when you were an undergraduate did you did you have any thoughts on theory then, where you were a bit like, oh, well, theory? Because oh. it's interesting, just yeah. because I I would say when I if you asked me when I was an undergraduate archaeological theory, I would have said, dear lord, no. <laughs> and I get the impression that a number of people are like that. If you ask me now, I'm just like, I love that stuff. Like, mm. it's, I find it fascinating. I mean, I find I was recently <clears> doing the the Rome Britain module. I do a seminar on, on Romanization and how that model has changed. And I think the students get slightly worried about how enthusiastic I am about telling them that you do not use this word. It, it's yeah. a word that is in the dustbin now. And go, but going through those various subsequent models as well, um, still use the, the Jane Webster realization paper, which covers yep. all the, the different models, which I think is still a really good paper to Absolutely. use. But yeah. um, I can see that like, some of them sit there and some of them, I think it is a massive revelation to them because they never thought about it in those kind of terms yeah. of how complicated it is. But I think others just, there's something about the idea of theory that people sometimes actively resist. And I don't know if there's just something about the connotation of a word or something, mm. but I do, I do believe that once people are exposed to it enough, they get to a point where suddenly it does click and they go, oh, I understand why this is important. I understand yeah. why it's interesting. And then <clears throat> go on from there. But I do, it does fascinate me that I, I don't know that there seems to be this thing that particularly people maybe 
an earlier stage in their career can be quite hesitant towards that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you said yourself that you kind of only shifted towards yeah. it in your mind. Well, masters. I think uh, it relates to what I was just saying about the kind of public perception of archaeology. Archaeology is, in lots of ways, in the public domain, is essentially still culture history, with everything that means. It's not. It's about particular groups of people that people uh, find appealing or find a feel that they have a connection to, whether it's, you know, to use words that we don't use anymore, Celts or whatever. Um, and it's also culture historical in terms of being sort of framed in a very kind of commonsensical way as a, as a fairly straightforward sort of activity that you, you dig stuff, you find finds, you can slot them into a framework of classification and that tells you something about a bunch of people that you're interested in. <clears throat> and sometimes I think also that actually it's not only that, it's also that for some people, and I, and I think this would have applied to me actually, given that Indiana Jones was one of my formative influences, that there's an escapist aspect to archaeology, to the past, where you're almost additionally kind of resistant to theory, not necessarily because it's complicated, but because it sort of starts to draw in contemporary life and politics. And that's kind of what you're not, ex almost explicitly not interested in when you choose to go into archaeology at that point, because, you know, you're trying to get get away from that. Mm. <clears throat> so um, breaking down those preconceptions and also almost challenging those instincts is the reason there's a hurdle here, or part of the reason there's a hurdle here. But I think it's, obviously, I suppose I would say now, but I think it's massively worthwhile, because archaeology can only fulfil its potential when we do that, and it can only do that uh, socially, but also at the, at the individual level. It only starts to become really rewarding when you do that. Mm. And I think I... So I did... Um, did fine in my undergraduate studies and it wasn't um, particularly a theoretically uh, explicit degree at that point in the early 90s <clears throat> but um, during I mean actually it's sort of yeah there's kind of a specific little story here to do with how I don't know, you know, sort of coincidences and how things change a little bit while you're in the, in the progress of your training that can have a big impact. So I had a year out after my bachelor's, I was working in the field <clears throat> quite a lot, worked for um, what used to be the Bedford uh, unit and um, did quite a lot of digging, worked in Virgin Megastore for a little while as well, um, but came back then to do my master's and in the time I'd been out the institute had changed directorship so um, Peter Rocco had come in and um, started to reform quite a lot of things um, which are still quite significant in how the department works uh, among which was the expansion of master's teaching and, and master's degrees changed to some of the programs and there was a kind of new broom in terms of the theoretical teaching as well, and so the master's theory course I took uh, was the kind of key thing. And I remember telling at the kind of welcome party, talking to Steve Shannon, <clears throat> professor of theoretical archaeology, um, that I thought theory was a bit iffy, and you know I was waiting to be convinced that it was relevant to what I was interested in. And yeah, I was wrong, or at least I was convinced, you know, pretty quickly, <clears throat> just doing the theory course I did then. Um, it really kind of blew my mind. I mean, uh, just sort of opening up the world. You know, when you have... It, that's why it's not facetious to call it an epiphany in terms of realising that <clears throat> archaeology is just way more interesting than I thought it was. I was interested enough to do a degree in it and to start a second degree. But after that, you know, it was clear that this was going to be my career and uh, and trying to I don't know, trying to explore that vast world of different ways of thinking about being human which is what archaeology is actually, I think Yeah, I um, think of it in terms, sometimes when I'm teaching 
particularly in the doing Roman Britain, because I suppose particularly <clears throat> in the case of study of Roman Britain, there's been yeah. a lot of theoretical advances. I sometimes think of it almost a little bit like trying to hold up a mirror to people and yeah, saying, yeah, like, yeah. This, this is you looking at your own culture now. Because yep. obviously with Roman Britain, your, your own work feeds into this a lot. Um, how we approach Roman Britain is very much, to me, is is relates very heavily to how we approach Britain's own imperial legacy. They're very much intertwined. Absolutely. And it's actually... I don't think people often, particularly outside of the discipline, uh, many people perhaps inside the discipline don't quite realise that, and how actually the study of Rome Britain, you can't study Rome Britain, I don't think, without exploring the Britain in the 20th century. And even Absolutely. even now, the current situation, as you've written about, yeah. like the reaction to the end of empire and where it leads yeah, you, yeah, yeah. Um, kind of leads us perhaps into the situation that we're in now. Yeah. Um, and I think that's actually what, as you say, makes it one of the such an interesting topic. And, yeah. and it, 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 I think it is that kind of sense that <clears throat> you start to realise as you progress sometimes in archaeology that there's a lot more to this than what you thought as you're saying, like, I probably went to much for the same reasons, the escapism, watching Indiana Jones, and, you know, I still love that. I love the idea of being able to go yeah, abroad yeah, yeah. and dig somewhere in the sun, and, yeah. you know, but at the same time, I am very much fascinated with this idea of, as I say, when I teach particularly things like Roman Britain, and discussing Britain's own imperial legacy, and, I mean, in many respects, as we were talking about earlier before we started recording, and we'll get back to, um, the way that Rome Britain's present, presented, because obviously that has changed a lot in, in recent times. I mean, the thing that springs to my mind is the recent for all that was from the, was it the BBC video about the soldier on Hadrian's Wall, the black soldier on Hadrian's Wall, and yeah. then that kind of that kind of blew up with different people arguing about yeah, yeah. it. And, and I suppose as well, there was, we've seen the reaction. Um, I remember going to a lecture with, uh, being given by Heather Eckhart where she was talking about her research and the um, the ivory bangle lady in York, the the lady up there, yeah, the yeah, yeah, um, yeah. lady of African descent who had been quite wealthy, and the reaction that seems to have got in the media, um, in some respect, in some areas, uh, a pretty angry reaction. Yeah, but it's 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 fascinating that that how archaeology relates to the current climate in Britain and how it can inform and also how it creates a lot of debate as well. What I mean, what's your kind of opinion on, on the whole? use of, of, of social media in terms of um, how we present our ideas and um, research? Well, I think that it's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, personally, I'm a, a sort of late adopter, actually, with respect to social media. It's only in the last couple of years um, that I've been more active. And therefore, I don't know, I'm still maybe, well, definitely not using it as much as I could. And I sort of have different domains, I guess. So Twitter actually is my mainly my political kind of thing. I don't really talk much about Roman archaeology in there, or <clears throat> on there. I mainly tweet about Brexit. Um, and occasionally about American politics. And then, yeah, sort of Facebook and Instagram, a, a bit more kind of personal stuff, a bit of politics. Um, but so I yeah, it's quite specific for me when I use it relating to a particular kind of archaeological thing, mm. uh, depending on what, you know, if I'm at a conference or something, that's different. But So I could use it more, but, um, you know, generally speaking, I think it's it's great. But what's interesting about it, as you've just sort of mentioned, is how it plugs into a whole new set of relationships with different different communities, different publics, which can have both good and bad aspects. To what extent social media is feeding that is debated, I guess, and debatable. It certainly presents us with a problem to, to address, which is how, not so much, I mean, it is a practical problem of how you respond to, I mean, I've not experienced this myself, but how one responds to you know, being trolled by right-wing nutters who want to abuse you, as, you know, Mary Beard most famously has had to, sadly had to put up with. But the wider, really wider issue there is to do with the politicisation of academic knowledge, by which I mean the assumption that we are political. That's a really interesting and challenging place we're in now, that it's not just that if we are overtly political 
that people react to that. It's that whatever we say, people assume that it, it is from a politically motivated direction. So you can, you know, as an example you just said, with Heller's work, you can have um, robust scientific evidence that points in a certain direction towards the origin of somebody buried in Roman Britain, and people will accuse you of being, you know, politically correct, blah, blah, blah just because they don't like what you're saying about the past. It's very revealing and interesting in terms of what this sort of tells us about people's attitudes to the past, that people sim, and it goes back to what we were saying earlier in terms of that kind of, the kind of baseline understanding of archaeology, I guess, which is that it, it kind of, it, it's really important in, in giving people a sense of their place in the present. And I guess people will defend that place in a way which means they are defending their vision of the past in the face of whatever we might come up with. And I mean, I've been thinking a lot about this lately in terms of other similar sort of controversies, you know, climate science, the anti-vax movement, they're all kind of similar in terms of the politicians and other people who who for various reasons, don't like what the science is saying, accuse the scientists of being political. That's the kind of argument that they think is their trump card, I guess. And we have Which to pun intended. That. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have to kind of flip that around somehow and say, actually, no, reality is like this. And if that is pointing in a certain political direction, well, okay, it's political. But it means that we have to, you know, be prepared to take that on and, and ad address these implications. That if um, if our scholarship, based as it is, you know, I'm basically pretty post-processual, but I'm uh, quite happy to also say I'm a social scientist because I work, you know, critically, analytically and coherently, I hope, on the subject I study. And... Um, if that points in a certain direction of things that we should be doing now, then so be it. If you want to call that political, fine, it's political. I'm not going to deny that. But that means, um, you know, it's still an argument that should be taken seriously. How do you feel, Get obviously with the, the current climate as we hurtle towards Brexit, do you think that social media we should actively go out and i don't know fire fire fires is the way of putting it but should we be at taking an active role to challenge things on, on on social media or particularly like people like for example if you see a status or something someone puts up and you're like no it's like this or do you think it's better to do it mainly through communicating things via um papers research maybe blogs for example i just wonder because there's this whole danger with with social media sometimes of where things become people become almost like they view each other almost as cartoons where it's so, so easy to get into an argument with someone through a yeah. keyboard and and sometimes those things can be incredibly futile and they can kind of suck away the, your energy uh and getting engaged with it i mean do you do you think that there should be i mean as you say yourself like you use your twitter to, to mainly to do with politics i mean do you do you find yourself on there in, engaging much with people with with like opposing views and saying actually no I think it's like this or do you think it, it, that's just basically a waste of time and that actually to address that you, we should be looking at other avenues um, <clears throat> very interesting question I mean I think well personally I, I mean I chip into stuff but I don't go out of my way to um, get into a flame war I guess maybe because I'm a bit of a coward maybe I don't have enough leverage but I think there are uh, I think multiple fronts you know you've got to go along all different fronts you've got to you do have to engage on <clears throat> on social media um, and you know support colleagues so you know tweeting in support of Mary Beard in that big flare up um, for example but also pursuing the more um well-worn lines of communication, talking to local societies and that sort of thing, speaking to different, you know, even different groups of students in different parts of the country will have maybe different views on this issue. 
But I think speaking about it, as opposed to avoiding it, is definitely important. Because I suppose my position on this is, it's not simply to say that we need to draw kind of trite parallels between the past and the present. Because the thing about the Roman period is it's used on both sides. You know, some people will say, well, Britain was once part of this amazing multicultural union that encompassed most of Europe, or Western Europe, and uh, allowed for multiculturalism, and that's great, and the EU's like that, so we should stay in it. Now, I happen to kind of believe in that vision of the EU. But equally, some people on social media have said, well, no, the Roman Empire was a horrible imperialist organisation that imposed bad things on lots of countries, so it's better we're better off out of it. The thing is, in the Roman period, you can find things that work on both sides of the argument, which is is why these sorts of debates are a little bit different to, say, the debate over anti, the anti-vax movement and, you know, the link between vaccinations and autism, which is um, much more clear-cut. However, that doesn't mean the past is not relevant, but I'd say it's, um, going back to what you were saying earlier, that the legacy of imperialism through European history and then global history is where it's um, it starts to get really more sort of uh, specifically relevant to what's happening now in the UK. And that to point out the manifest historical ignorances of most Brexit campaigners in terms of what they think they're evoking when they evoke the British Empire, for example. All that stuff, that's where we have massive critical leverage. Um, and in a way, the Roman period and the way it was appropriated in British imperialism is then part of that. But it's also, in a way, it's not about archaeology at all in terms of the substance of archaeology. It's about the viability of archaeology in the future because of the funding, because of the access to international networks of students and of uh, colleagues, all that kind of practical stuff. And it's also about things that have nothing to do with archaeology whatsoever, but to do with the um, kind of country we want to live in. A little isolated, monocultural, um, pariah state, or an international, dynamic, welcoming, tolerant, vibrant country. You know, that's the choice, and that in a way has got very little to do with the past. So, um, I think I'm fueled both by my academic interests, influenced as they are really by a lot of the theory I've worked with, which has to do with, you know, how identities work and all that kind of stuff, <clears throat> but also simply by my kind of citizenship and my, um, the kind of world I want to live in in the future. And past can only take us so far and in a way the past drags us down sometimes and we have to be aware for that as well mm. I, was, uh, I was actually having a conversation mm. so. yeah some conversation with my mum this morning about this about um we talk about past and what yeah. actually is the past yeah. like how there are people now that um have this idea of the good old days but good old yeah, days yeah. They, were, they were born after never <clears> lived through <throat> and then look back at it and it's actually not the, they constructed an image of the past is actually not what it was like at all and I suppose, I suppose he goes into that whole kind of debate of what is truth kind of thing. Mm. Like it's, it's fascinating, though, how people can construct all these different versions of, of a past. I mean, I did a, um, I did a, a assignment for my Roman Britain class where they had to, because uh, they were limited, it had to be a 500-word assignment, so I got them to choose an event from Romano-British history and tweet about it from the perspective of that person. Mm. Um so, for example, like Caesar's invasion, like a lot of them chose to be Caesar. But I said something like, "You could be creative with it," and you know, somebody chose to be Boudicca's daughter, one of Boudicca's daughters. Um, somebody else chose to be a standard bearer under Agricola. Mm-hmm. But what I found quite interesting, in particular, was the idea of how people would approach. A lot of people chose to be people like Caesar, Boudicca, etc., and how they would approach the character and how they present them and yeah. how they construct the yeah, image yeah. of that person and how that would differ between them. Um, because particularly in the case of say someone like Caesar, they, they, different people have different ideas of how he would present himself, uh-huh. uh, and that, that was just a fascinating thing. And it's kind of um, we haven't got 
round to reviewing it yet because I only just finished marking them. But I don't think they've probably realised at the moment that what I'm doing is going to go back earlier to the idea of putting a mirror up to somebody and showing them. You know, I'm going to we're going to go over it. And I'm going to say to them like, well, why did you choose the people you chose? Why did you present them in the way you did? Yeah, yeah. And those kind of subconscious choices <clears throat> that people make yeah, based on yeah, their interpretation yeah. of the past. Yeah. Because the other interesting thing I would say is that probably in the group that we have a roughly about a 50-50 gender split uh-huh. but I've got a feeling was I'm going to go through and see how many people chose to be a male character as opposed to a female character yeah. and ask them like well, why do you think more people chose to be a male character yeah, even yeah. if you're female and, it's, yeah. and getting them to think about those kind of things about um, the biases that we have towards the past without perhaps even realising mm. it and the image that we Absolutely. construct um, yeah, yeah, yeah. but um, carrying on with that idea of, of, of impact because one of the things we were talking about earlier was too much TV and how it's presented. <laughs> and actually, as I, I look around your office now, uh, when I walk in, I know I see you have many, many books, but the first thing my eye is drawn towards is the fact you have a Lego Millennium Falcon, <laughs> yeah. and I am incredibly jealous of it. That's not the that's not like the really top notch one, is it? That, that's no, the... uh, it's a relatively old set, but it is the Hoth uh, themed one. So the the minifigures have um, in fact here's Han Solo in his Hoth. Uh, Oh, you got the Tauntaun. With a oh, Tauntaun, wow. yeah. A I, actually, I actually have in my office, <clears throat> on the top of the screen for my um, computer, uh, I have the little mini figure, the Lego figures of Luke and Han getting their medals. Uh, blue tax one. Yeah. Like one, of my, one of my students came in, uh, came in and was like, I like the figures. And then I was like, yeah. And she was like, never see Chewbacca though with his medal, do you? And I was like, yeah. Uh, Wookiees don't get medals. But... Um, I mean, because that's one of the things you're quite interested in, particularly uh, in regards to gaming yeah, and the past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what's some of the things that you've kind of explored in that regard? Like, I mean, what, what sort of things have you uh, observed through? Well, I mean, so that kind of came out of just, I suppose, just exploiting one of my own interests for, you know, a couple of papers. Because I think, you know, I feel pretty lucky to be of sort of the right age where I don't actually have to grow up in some senses. There's some ways in which culture has changed, popular culture, so-called, has changed in the last sort of 30 years that mean that now one doesn't really have to shed the things that in a previous generation would have been regarded as inappropriate uh, sort of childish interests like playing computer games or tabletop games or other things that I like doing. And that's great. I really like that. <clears throat> and then to be able to keep those interests and not I mean there's a sort of a fine line I suppose between turning your kind of critical gaze onto stuff that you like it's it's hard to not do that and you know sometimes it's pretty important to do that <clears throat> but you don't necessarily want to kind of overanalyze everything that like you said earlier with Indiana Jones you know obviously loads of issues in different ways but at the end of the day something you might still get some enjoyment out of mm. and um i can't i i really really struggle with people that watch films like gladiator and point out just the historical yeah, inaccuracies because yeah, yeah. i'm like it's a film exactly, like yeah. you can't expect yeah. it to be entirely accurate yeah I mean, absolutely and different know, media have different purposes and nothing's perfect yeah uh in in any sense but the the thing about games is that they offer past worlds recreated uh, in a way that certainly now is exceeding cinematic um, visions of the past and of course because of their interactivity that's uh, a lot more powerful and loads of people play them loads of people learn things from them uh, consciously or otherwise when I was, so uh, it's worth thinking about them yeah. just when, as much as anything when I was growing up one of my favourite games was Age of Empires 2 yeah. and uh, I always remember Classic. the manual that came with it yeah. the manual had for every unit and building and everything it had a little historical yeah, commentary yeah, yeah, on what exactly, it was exactly. and I love that I remember getting the game and before I even played the game I just sat there and read the manual about everything yeah. no so these things are exactly they, they are sort of both buttressed by actually an increasing degree of, of research by the people designing the games and they feed into certainly I was going to say popular perceptions of the past but our own perceptions of the past as well and that's kind of I'm interested in the archaeological imagination and how you know archaeology is an inherently imaginative subject which is another reason why theory is so important but we visualize the past in our mind's eye and that's an imaginative exercise and we are influenced by 
a whole range of things in, in that. Um, you know, Lord of the Rings style, medieval, past, um, classical style, past, whatever. So fiction and, and sort of um, creative works are all influences there and, and definitely games are part of that. And, um, and the sort of crossover between the models, if you like, of the world used in gaming and the models that we use to imagine the past in scholarship are quite there's quite a lot of, of contacts there and for example in teaching um about uh processual archaeology i talk about civilization the game civilization mm. because the model of the kind of trait list approach to major stages of civilization uh and how you can sort of jump from you know chieftain to state when you've got enough whatever you know you've got literacy and grain stores and a professional military and all these kinds of things that's how civilization the game works and that is how that kind of theory uh popular in the 70s worked and so you know the the world of games builds upon um the same sorts of imaginative and and sort of modeling exercises that the archaeology does and, and vice versa i suppose because mm. I know the new Assassin's Creed's come out now, which like recreates is it Athens. Uh, yeah, it's set in, yeah. in ancient Greece. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I saw one of my colleagues was who, who studies ancient Greece was talking about it the other day, and she was just fascinated by the art. She, she was like, "What's this game I've heard about that's come mm. out?" And I had to explain to her what Assassin's Creed was. Yeah, and I think she's actually going to go out and like maybe possibly invest in getting like a PS4 just so she can play it. But it, we were having a conversation about it, and another one of my colleagues was saying as well. He was like, what we could do one day is we could do like a land thing or we play like Rome Total War, yeah, but yeah. we could commentate over it as to yeah, what's yeah, going yeah, on, like yeah. talking about it as another way of, of teaching people, particularly about battles. Did you ever see the film, um, ever see the TV program Time Commanders, was it? Uh, was, yeah, I know what you mean. I saw a couple of them, I think. Yeah, it was a BBC Two, BBC two series yeah. where I think they were using Rome Total they War. They were using the game but, engine, yeah. Yeah, before it actually came out properly. Yeah. And it was people in teams controlled like a famous army from history in a battle yeah. and they had to see if they could maybe win it when they the person in antiquity like the general did it or yeah, yeah, how yeah. it compared but that was that was fascinating as well and just it is is a, as you say like particularly we're getting to the point now where the games are almost overtaking the cinematic experience and I, I suppose in some respects it's a chance for people to actually live it as well. Mm. I mean, we're probably not a million miles away from eventually getting to the point with VR headsets where yeah. people will actually not just be able to watch a TV screen where they walk around ancient Athens or Constantinople in one of the earlier Assassin's Creed, but actually like physically feel like they're there going around the city. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. But I think, I mean, that in, in turn poses some interesting questions about the sort of... Um, uh, the things we fixate on and the things we ignore when we do imagine the past. So, you know, obviously battles uh, are a big part of, traditionally a big part of gaming, and that comes from the pre-existing tabletop and sort of pen and paper kind of wargaming traditions, which I'm also interested in. But when we have games which allow you to be a Romano-British farmer for a year in real time, that would be amazing, but who's going to play that because it'll be incredibly boring yeah so you know there's there's things about the well it'd be interesting for a while let's say that but after a while it would get pretty boring you know that the and this in a way i suppose i mean it does relate to the things we we're talking about earlier in terms of the kind of volume of stuff that the pace of change in life these days is extraordinary and it gets harder and harder to imagine a past where you know obviously it's easy to stereotype the past as being very kind of static and Unchanging, I'm sure it wasn't like that, uh, and it's our job to find out to what extent things were um, changing all the time. But nonetheless, you know, we're getting into a kind of headspace which is pretty far removed from the life of a farmer in Roman Britain in the third century AD, and our sort of confrontation with that past is <clears throat> more and more challenging. But and even the sort of pace of change in our own discipline something to think about in terms of what we should be expecting because <clears throat> you know the sort of traditional paradigms of Romano British archaeology were operate, operational for a long time you know a century we've only been pushing the boundaries kind of deliberately for about 30 years which is a relatively small time and um, where we will be in another 30 years 
or another hundred years. It's, it's very hard to imagine. I suppose maybe what I'm partly saying though is, is that I think things don't maybe change as much as, as quickly as we want them to. And there are reasons for that. doesn't mean we have to sort of stop pushing, but one has to sort of be realistic in the expectations of how quickly we can really change the whole outlook of a discipline. Mm. I still find myself going back to Skyrim. Mm. I always end up playing the, the legionary um, storyline. Yeah. As, as much as I always want to do the Nord storyline, I always end up being legionary. Because I know people have done stuff on that as well, as like what kind of things you gravitate towards in terms of people doing reenactment societies yeah, yeah, yeah. and which ones yeah. you choose. <clears throat> Correct me if I'm wrong, but were you did you do the um, part of the Elm Street Guard? Uh, or? I was briefly in the Elm oh, Street Guard, okay. yeah, just for a f- handful of events in the late nineties, yeah, uh, which was interesting, yeah. <clears throat> but again, I guess I mean there's just too many things to do, yeah, and uh, it takes a, a time commitment. When I got to the stage where I was going to have to make my own equipment, I kind of had to call it a day, but. Yeah, I mean, obviously, all of these things in terms of how people engage with the past in the present and make that that imaginative leap manifest in the real world, those are interesting. And what people are trying to do with that, again, you know, is reenactment really escapism? What does it tell us about the past? Or what does it tell us about our attitudes to the past? Obviously, reenactment research has generated quite a lot of insights into aspects of, of material culture absolutely important stuff but you know we're always going to be modern people dressing up in that sense or inhabiting an, uh, a virtual world in, in a computer game or whatever it is um, you always got the opportunity to switch it off whenever you want to you're not yeah, you're not right, bound exactly. into it yeah, and that's, yeah, yeah. that's obviously yeah. going to have repercussions I suppose as you're saying you can always put on the armour and wave the sword around but yeah. you're never going to quite be able to recreate no, no, the experience no. of what it's like in the Roman army but this relates to another uh, interesting theme that, that cross cuts again those sort of domains of gaming and reenactment and other stuff is sort of what, what constitutes authenticity and, mm. and what people want from authentic engagements with the past because authenticity can be as you know, you said earlier in terms of watching Gladiator authenticity can be narrowly defined in terms of technical accuracy but there are other other things that speak to authenticity I was reading an interesting paper recently about um, that actually in quite a lot of cases what gamers are looking for in terms of authentic experience is not any of those things really it's about feeling that that life is at stake that we live in I mean obviously this is not true for quite a lot of people but lots of people in the Western world live in pretty safe, and despite massive political things going on, it doesn't look like we're going to have a you know revolution tomorrow. Um, life seems to continue, which is interestingly part of the problem, I think, in terms of complacency. But that's another issue. But so gaming is a way of kind of raising the stakes in in life and experiencing things that you just don't experience. And weirdly, I suppose maybe the past life and death was a bit more ever-present because you could die from an infection if you cut your finger pretty Mm -hmm. easily and that doesn't typically happen anymore so just these kind of very basic issues to do with how life has changed have a powerful influence on what people are looking for when they they seek out the past through games or reenactment or whatever it may be yeah what are your thoughts just very quickly on the prospect of a second gladiator film um, I was thinking to myself the other day what we were talking about earlier in the uh, you might say the umbrage that certain people would take to the yeah, presentation yeah, yeah. of uh, showing a Roman world that maybe you could argue is, is more diverse than what they're used to I was like it'd be quite funny if they did a new gladiator film and it just ended with uh, Septimius Severus this guy from Africa just taking yeah, over yeah, the yeah. Roman world I think some people would blow a gasket about that but then you'd be like well it's, it's yeah, historically well, accurate yeah. <laughs> it's actually what happened yeah 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 no, I mean I guess the more different things we have to present in the real world the better we don't necessarily need more of the same things but more different things yeah i mean the past in the present is either the same as the present or it's different in other words the past is often very often used to try to keep things the same as people say it was in the past mm-hmm. obviously that is not quite the same as 
really was, but um, I'm more inclined to try to see the past as different and to use it to unsettle the present and, yeah. and shake things up. Because we're going down some uh, depressingly uh, reactionary and sort of regressive pathways at the moment, generally speaking, and we need to break out of those damn quickly. Mm. <clears throat> I'll just say, I, one of the things I bring up in Rome recently, just to go back to Severus, is I don't know, I don't think most people realise that the Roman Empire at one point was technically run from York by a guy from Africa, which is a yeah. fascinating idea. Yeah, totally. It's completely totally, something yeah, that yeah. people don't realise. And no. I'm just like, just think about that. That's, that's mad. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think we'll move to wrapping it up now. But if... Well, one quick thing, actually, we did we haven't mentioned that I did want to bring up is Day of Archaeology. Um, University Archaeology yeah, Day. Yeah. How do you think that's been going for the last few years? Is that Do you think that's having a really good impact? Uh, it's been really good. Um, I mean, there's... Uh, it's probably it's a long term project or a long term thing that we need to keep doing, and I hope it will continue to grow um, every year. But obviously, as one of the people organising, I think it's an important initiative in terms of how we work together as a discipline to solve one of the problems we face as a discipline, which is basically making more archaeologists. Um, you know, creating opportunities for people to come and study archaeology, but making them aware that those exist and what um, what archaeology offers. And it goes right back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of the kind of scope of archaeology. I think it's the best subject. You know, I really do. In terms of literally every other discipline you can think of, there's a place for it within the archaeological umbrella. Mm. You can be anything when you're an archaeologist, and. <clears throat> That applies equally to getting a job afterwards. So to have it sort of regarded uh, in the wider world as a sort of rather quirky or esoteric or stuffy or dirty or boring subject breaks my heart. And really, that is or none of those things are true. Mm-hmm. Um, so this day is is one thing we try to do to make the sort of uh, awareness of what archaeology is really like uh, sort of uh, to widen that awareness and as a sort of side effect but I think actually equally important really um, it's about bringing all the departments that teach archaeology together in one place in a way that's a bit different to a conference or a uh, another sort of meeting where that that might happen, uh, of course, and, and does happen. But um, when we're focusing on that issue of how we portray archaeology and how that feeds into our recruitment, um, there's a strong sort of collectivism, I think, in that. It's easy when the subject's under pressure to fall prey to competition, but that, in my opinion, that doesn't benefit any of us. Um, it's got to be about collaboration, and, and that collaboration can have other effects in terms of other things that we might do together uh, on you know other other levels, other dimensions. So, uh, and e- equally importantly, bringing in other organisations that promote archaeology, that organise archaeological activities, that uh, work in the commercial sector, all that sort of thing, um, shows how you know archaeology really is a a fantastic community, and that's another of the, another of the good things about it, really. Mm. Are we going ahead as usual next year as well? Um, yes, yeah, we're still trying to finalise the details, but there'll be announcements uh, soon about time and place and so on. Cool. Have you got anything else you want to advertise? Any other events you've got on the horizon? You? Um, I'm involved in a workshop on the Roman Army in February that will be here at the Institute. A uh, call for papers um, has just gone out Um to do with that, but otherwise, um, I don't think so. You'll be at track as well. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> be at track. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't miss it. Great. I think if anybody I know, you've probably got the best commitment in terms of the track party because you're always <laughs> one of the last people left. Well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, convinced we're going to throw a good party this year. Uh, good. We have a lot to live up to. to. We have a lot to live up to. Yeah, we're yeah, well yeah. aware of the uh, of, of what we inherited in that regard. Um, but yeah, as you mentioned earlier as well, you're, you're active on social media, so so people can find you on there. They certainly can, yeah. Which just Andy Garner, really, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty easy to find on yeah. um, the main things, yeah. Cool, brilliant. Right, thanks a lot. Thank you.
thanks for listening to Coffee and Circuses. The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh, or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's with a full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies, who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cajora by Roll Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org. And in the background right now, you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a Diocletian. <laughs>